Bienvenidos, esto es Diario de Abordo, una travesía a Waldorf. Mi nombre es Juan Pablo Varías. Y yo soy José Tobar. Somos dos profesores de secundaria intentando llevar una bitácora de las distintas peripecias que se presentan en el viaje por la educación Waldorf. Desde el Colegio Waldorf Guatemala estamos grabando, en esta ocasión grabamos una entrevista con Cynthia Hoven. Esto es porque ella es la coordinadora de la formación que se está llevando a cabo aquí en el Colegio Waldorf Guatemala. Estamos siendo parte de un proceso de certificación de maestros, donde cada uno de los maestros que, pues, que estamos dentro del colegio estamos siendo formados año con año. Tenemos eh, una formación que se da a principios del año en enero, que dura una semana y luego se complementa con dos semanas en, en los meses de junio y julio, eh, en los cuales pues vienen diferentes capacitadores de distintos lugares, en su mayoría de México y Estados Unidos, aunque también hemos tenido algunos capacitadores de Sudamérica, como van a escuchar en los próximos episodios a Victoria Reyes y también hemos tenido a capacitadores de Argentina. Entonces, eh, realmente es una capacitación muy eh, importante, muy completa también, eh, porque esto significa que al mismo tiempo en que el Colegio Waldorf Guatemala está creciendo, pues eh, vamos nosotros los maestros nos vamos formando y vamos... Eh, siendo parte de este proceso de certificación. Entonces, eh, decidimos entrevistar a Cintia, como les digo, que es quien ha coordinado estos eh, dos años que llevamos eh, dentro de la formación, quien ha coordinado tanto la parte curricular como nos ha ayudado muchísimo en la parte de contactar a las personas específicas, porque cada área... Eh, hablando de, del jardín de niños de preescolar, eh, hablando de la primaria y, y de la secundaria, necesita pues tener una persona que los pueda orientar. Asimismo vamos a escuchar en los próximos episodios también a Leslie Ramírez, que es una maestra de música. Entonces vamos complementando cada una de las áreas y para eso necesitamos personas especializadas con, con mucha experiencia y eso es lo que vamos a... mucha experiencia dentro de la pedagogía de Waldorf. Y eso es lo que vamos a escuchar en los próximos episodios. Este primer episodio... Es con Cynthia Hoven, como les digo. Eh, es una serie de episodios que vamos a grabar en inglés para no perdernos la oportunidad de poder escuchar a, a estos capacitadores que tienen muchísimo que aportar acerca de la pedagogía Waldorf. Así que eh, espero que disfruten la entrevista con Cynthia. So, welcome Cynthia. Thank you very much for joining our conversation. Um, you have been coming to Guatemala for the past, this is your third year, so um, we have had time to talk a little bit about different things, but um, thank you very much for for joining us. Um, you're a eurythmist, you're an, um, an anthroposophy teacher, uh, you're a Waldorf parent, so um, I think you have a lot of things to say. Um, but maybe we can start by, um, you can tell us How did you become, uh, well, everything, the eurythmist and wealth of uh, parent and all that? Thank you so much for the question, Juan Pablo. So I am now 67, and I've been working with anthroposophy since I was 23. So it's been a lifetime doing this work, and it's been so fulfilling in every way. So how did I get started? I grew up in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And my 
parents were both very um, active seekers. My father was an electrical engineer, and my mother was very active in church education, church work. And I, from my disposition, really wanted to find a way to both be a scientist and to be involved in spiritual things. And so, to tell the truth, when I was 12, I thought I would become a parapsychologist. Oh, really? Quite an extraordinary ambition for a child. And because of that, when I went to university, I studied mathematics and physics. I have a degree in math and physics and a degree in psychology. So a double major from Purdue University. But I graduated ahead of time after only three years. And then I said, you know, I actually think I'm too young to go directly into graduate school. Mm -hmm. I would like to see the world. This was back in the 70s. So after graduating, I got myself a backpack and hitchhiked around the world, low budget, for two years. Around the world. Around the whole world. The Northern Hemisphere. Europe first and then traveled across areas that you can't see anymore from across overland from Turkey through Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and saw all these wonderful old cultures. And from there, went on to Southeast Asia, Vietnam, and then went to Taiwan, and ended up spending an entire year in Japan. And that was when I was 21, 22. Mm -hmm. And in Japan, I was studying acupuncture. And thus, by the time I got back to the United States, I had a different view of what I wanted to do with my life. And I thought, rather than studying parapsychology, which is researching spiritual things with scientific and statistical methods, mm -hmm. I would rather become a healer using spiritual insights. But I didn't have any idea what that could be. And so it took me a bit of time to find the connections to the people that I needed to find, but eventually I heard about Eurythmy. And I heard that Eurythmy is a movement path that can also be healing with a deep spiritual basis. And so I moved my life, moved to a city in Northern California, and began my Eurythmy training. Although I didn't know how life-changing it would be, fundamentally life-changing. And how old were you at the time? 23. 23. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's significant to say that when I went on that trip around the world, I essentially was wondering if I would find a guru in India. Mm -hmm. And it became very clear to me that there was no guru for me. And I realized that. I needed to find a path that grew out of the Western traditions or the Western spirituality, which has something more cognitive in it. Right. And the Eastern traditions are more mystical. And in, I need to have something that values my mind as much as it values my heart. And so when I found Eurythmy, I 
began that training and soon discovered that it was connected to this philosophy called anthroposophy, which means the wisdom of the human being. And so I discovered that that was a path in which I could use my mind, because I have from my birth and from my upbringing an intense search for knowledge and understanding. So anthroposophy was a training in that as well as a training in the art form of eurythmy. Now the art form of eurythmy, perhaps we can speak more about that later, but it requires an entire four-year full-time training. It's long, it's intense, and it's powerfully transformative because in the training we have to be intensely disciplined in our body practice and we have to learn poetry and art, but we also study mm, astronomy, history, literature, so many things. And when I say it's transformative, I mean that to become a eurythmist, we really have to work on our own personalities and our own self-development in a powerful way. So we have to take our inner training seriously. For instance, our ambition, there's no room for that. Our hate, no room, no room for self-doubt, no room for arrogance. We have to get as deeply in touch with our essential, authentic self and sense of integrity. That's a full four-year training before we are, receive a diploma. And even then, we're not done. So after I got my four-year diploma, I wanted to go on to study therapeutic eurythmy, which was my intention. And that is the application of eurythmy in the medical fields. So then I moved from California to Europe. I spent one year working in a professional stage group in a place called Dornach, Switzerland, which is actually the home where all of the anthroposophical work has its, its center, you could say, its, its central offices at a place called the Gertianum in Switzerland. And then I continued for another two-year full-time training in therapeutic eurythmy, in which we worked every day with physicians. We had three physicians full-time working on our staff. We learned um, physiology, we learned anatomy, we did organ sculpting, and also learned how to metamorphose the artistic form of eurythmy into its therapeutic applications. So as a therapeutic eurythmist, I really found my goal to learn how to help people with a wide spectrum of medical needs, like diabetes, like cancer, like ulcers, like strokes, heart diseases, movement disabilities, and for children, learning difficulties. We learned how to treat all of these through the application of therapeutic eurythmy. So seven years after I started, that got me to age 30. Then I stayed in, in Europe a few more years and worked in a psychiatric hospital doing eurythmy with psychiatric patients. Mm -hmm. 
before finally I felt I was ready to move back to the United States. In the United States, <laughs> I met with some colleagues of mine, a woman who is a physician trained in the application of anthroposophical philosophy and understanding for medicine. So a woman medical doctor trained in what we call anthroposophical medicine, which uses a lot of homeopathic therapies and other very um, complex health-bringing medical treatments. We call that actually salutogenic medicine, which means medicine which supports the health of a human being. So I met with this woman, as I said, she was an old friend of mine, and her husband, who is a massage therapist. And also, we were joined by the man who was my boyfriend at that time, whom I soon married, who is a biodynamic farmer. Mm -hmm. And the four of us started an actual medical clinic in Sacramento. And there we set up a very intensive work for a wide spectrum of patients. And that was the next step of my life for the next seven years until our daughter was born and I stepped back for a little while to become a mother and then stepped into a adult education after that. Oh, okay. Very interesting. Long story, Long right? Long story, but very interesting. <laughs> but maybe you can, I don't know, explain us a little bit more about uh, Eurythmy because probably a lot of people that are hearing us don't really quite understand what Eurythmy is and um, why is why it was so important for Steiner to include that in the curriculum because mm -hmm. um, nowadays there are not a lot of uh, Eurythmists but um, movement it's a very important part but maybe you can talk a little bit about that why movement is so important mm -hmm. but especially Eurythmy so I'll start with speaking a bit about Eurythmy it began in 1912 which was a good seven years before the Waldorf School movement started. And it began as, I suppose I could call it a renewal of dance, although it is actually not like any dance that we are accustomed to seeing. I would then mention that human beings have been dancing since the beginning of time. Human beings have been dancing to give thanks for the harvest. They've been dancing to celebrate peace. They've been dancing to celebrate births and marriages and to honor their heroes. And in the intervening millennia, dance has become much more entertainment. But dance originally had a way of creating and strengthening the social, cultural life for people. Mm -hmm. And what we do with Eurythmy is more in that direction, that it strengthens the culture, it strengthens the societies, and it also aims to support the people at the very foundations of their health. And When Rudolf Steiner began the art of Eurythmy, he began it because someone asked him, is there a form of art 
that would be appropriate for the modern human being, a dance form. And I th I'm going to backtrack for a second here and say, Rudolf Steiner always wanted to create contributions to civil society and to culture and to the sciences and to medicine. He wanted to create contributions to them that were a renewal of these arts and sciences for the modern human being. So a little detour here before we get directly back to Eurythmy that Rudolf Steiner calls his work spiritual science. Mm -hmm. And he lived at the beginning of the industrial age and at a time when society was becoming more and more, as I said, industrialized, mechanized, even materialistic. And Steiner fully affirmed the gifts of really developing natural sciences. It's a very valuable stage for humanity to go through. But he also said, we mustn't just be one-sided. We also have to develop a thinking that looks below the surface of things and acknowledges that the mechanical mindset of things isn't enough. We have to go deeper. So if we look at another human being, we have to look really at who they are and not just their body. We have to look at their personality. We have to look at their essence. And that will help us to support people and make a better society. And so Rudolf Steiner called his own work spiritual science because he was a very disciplined and um, morally strong, morally very conscientious thinker. And he wanted to give people a way to work in the 20th century and the 21st century that would be stronger than just assuming that the human being is a machine. So with this work that Rudolf Steiner started, we try to really bring humanistic values into everything that we're doing. And so, when Rudolf Steiner made contributions to medicine, he really tr asked the doctors to look below the surface of the disease to understand why did this particular person need this disease? And what can I give them so that they can fight their way through this disease and come out of it a better person? And when he worked with, for instance, finances, Rudolf Steiner would ask, what is money really? What does it mean when we exchange money with one another? That we're actually exchanging value. It's not just paper, but if I give you money, it's because I'm giving you some value and trusting you to do something better with it. Things like that. So he always asked questions that were beyond more, beyond what people would ask out of pure convenience. He wanted to go deeper. And so a lot of people who enjoyed studying with Rudolf Steiner or learning from him would say, so is there a way that we could do dance better? Is there a way that we could do education that is better? And so that's the tradition out of which Waldorf started. Now, Juan Pablo, the question you asked me was, how about Eurythmy? And so, yes, it happened that someone came and said, 
is there a way that we can do dance that is appropriate for the modern human being without merely being entertainment, without being just something superficial? He said, sure, so glad you asked me. And he began a dance, or this movement form of eurythmy, which is unique, because we learn to move in a way that understands, now I'll have to use the word spiritual, mm -hmm. the spiritual foundations of the human being. That, as human beings, we are deeply and profoundly related to meaning, the meanings like, the meaning that we express to one another when we talk, and when we sing, when we make music. And so, we have this astonishing art of eurythmy in which we learn to make the sounds of language into, sound, into movements, into gestures, and the sounds of music into gestures. So, as a eurythmist, I train my body to understand completely how to play my body like a violinist plays their violin. Meaning, I understand how beat and rhythm and pitch and melody and harmony work in music and also how they work in my body, in all the ways. So. When the music is quick, I learn to understand how to engage my energy in a way that makes that visible. And when the music goes up, I learn how to engage my whole feeling life so that I feel like I'm becoming more light. When the music goes down, I feel more weight. And when the music has major uh, elements in the melody line, I feel this outstreaming energy. And when it is minor, I will feel in-streaming energy. Literally, when I perform a piece of music in Eurythmy, I literally learn every single note and every single harmony in that piece of music. That's whether it's a piece that lasts 30 seconds or a piece that lasts 20 minutes, 30 minutes, like a whole symphony by Beethoven. And we perform every element that's in the music on the stage. So that's Eurythmy as visible music. And in Eurythmy as visible speech, what we do is we take the sounds of language and understand them as also dynamic movement patterns. And so we will take a fairy tale, a beautiful legend, a myth, or a poem, and we perform that also in movement. And so the training to be able to do that, as I said, takes a lot of work because I have to make, we have to make ourselves completely trained so that music can play through us and speech can speak through us. And I can't just be a expressive dancer who wants to show you my moods or my dance, or it's very different from modern dance. Yeah. No? So Eurythmy began as an art form. And then, when Rudolf Steiner started the Waldorf schools, he began the whole curriculum of the school, as you know, with important things like 
In addition to the curriculum, also all of the arts, painting and handwork and music. And he said, it's absolutely essential that Eurythmy be part of the curriculum. And as you said a moment ago, Juan Pablo, really there aren't that many Eurythmists. There aren't enough of us to be in a Waldorf school, but it plays an incredibly important part in the curriculum and schools that are lucky enough to have Eurythmists are in general much, much healthier than schools that don't have Eurythmists. And Eurythmy should be part of the curriculum beginning in first grade all the way to 12th grade. From first to third grade, the students should have Eurythmy once a week. And from fourth grade to 12th grade, they should have it twice a week. And Eurythmy really is to be understood as an art form in the curriculum and not a movement form. You can't replace it with gymnastics or anything like that. Movement is as essential in the same way that an orchestra is essential because when students do Eurythmy, they have to learn to collaborate and cooperate with their classmates. Now I should take a moment here to tell you a bit about what we do in the Eurythmy curriculum yeah, in the school. So we have an age-appropriate curriculum for every grade in the school and that develops through the grades. So with the very young child, we teach Eurythmy like a story, a really simple story. In kindergarten, we tell just delicate little movement stories such as, we're going to go to the farm today. And before we go to the farm, we put on our boots and we put on our coats and our hats and we take our basket and we go to the farm and we feed the chickens and we milk the cow. But we do this all with very precise and beautiful storytelling gestures that the students imitate. And that is very wholesome for the children because they're learning how to use their limbs in what I will say to you, Juan Pablo, a very human way. And I invite us to contrast <coughs> that with what it would be like for a child who spends their day on their iPad. That's not a human gesture. Or doing other things that are really just building machines. These storytelling gestures enable the children to, to flow, engage their limbs, engage their movements in a holistic way. And underneath that, with the very young child, that's helping them to experience <coughs> and to develop the skills of balance and orientation and space, coordination with their hands and their legs. So multimodal. I can come back to that in a moment, but the curriculum continues and we are always going parallel with what the main lesson teacher teaches. So in first grade, we teach the letters, even as the main lesson teacher is teaching the letters, but we teach them as sound experiences, telling stories about the different sounds and telling stories of fairy tales. So. A tiny example, and I'm sorry that your listeners can't see what I would like to tell you, 
But a tiny example is in my first grade Eurythmy lesson, I tell them a story like, Tiptoes was a fairy who lived at the top of a very tall tree. And she lived in an acorn as small as small can be. So a sweet story, but filled with gesture. And in doing that, we are supporting the child's picture imagination, which is something that the grades teacher is also supporting in the child as they help them learn how to read. So we are taking them into a kind of magical world, much healthier than what they would see on television, for instance. Okay, Cynthia, um, there's something that you mentioned and that I think that you were really careful when you said, I think I need to use the word and you said spiritual. Um, while the fabrication, as long as you with me and um, anthroposophical medicine and a lot of things were developed by uh, Rudolf Steiner. A lot of people that really don't understand, um, or not that they don't understand, but they ignore a lot of things, might say that uh, Rudolf Steiner was kind of a guru or that uh, we are uh, doing a lot of things that um, it's kind of a sect, you know, or whatever. How was Rudolf Steiner different from a guru? Why he was not a guru? What a great question, Juan Pablo. Rudolf Steiner was very clear that with the beginning of the industrial age, we're entering a new age in human development. And as I said, the age of the development of the mind. And in this age, he was very clear that each individual has to learn to think for themselves. In this age, it's not appropriate, as he said, for people to rely on spiritual gurus, or even, in his estimation, the classical religious teachers. Because, he said, the modern human being wants to understand things themselves. They might very well be a member of a church, for instance, it's possible, but they want to go to their church with a full understanding of what they're learning. So Rudolf Steiner did everything he could to explain to human beings the spiritual meanings of life with the goal that every human being should recognize that we're responsible for our moral deeds, for our personal education, for our personal decisions, and for our self-development, very much for our morality. And so, as Rudolf Steiner said, each of us has to develop in freedom in our age. And then he said, I can tell you out of my own research the way that I understand the spiritual underpinnings of the world, but I don't want you to believe any of it unless it makes sense to you. So, says Rudolf Steiner, never treat me as a guru. Question everything, but 
You can also question how you, how you got the beliefs that you have, and you might choose to look a little deeper. And you can see that behind this material world that we, leave, we live in is a world of beings, a world of intelligence, a world creator. And in the Western tradition, we call this creator God. And Rudolf Steiner said, yes, I believe in this divine world creator, but I won't ask you to believe in it. I ask you to give it a try and see if this worldview makes as much sense to you as, for instance, the pure natural scientific view makes to you. Give it a try. And so in the basic philosophy of Waldorf education and of what we call anthroposophy, Rudolf Steiner's philosophy, we understand that every human being is at their core a spiritual being living in their body on the earth. And each human being has a unique gift to unfold and develop. And we hope that everyone will do their very best to develop them, their own selves and take responsibility. Not just be a consumer, not strive to be just rich and famous and powerful, but to live a life of service to humanity and to the planet. And then it doesn't matter if you decide to be a doctor or a farmer or whatever your heart desires, as long as you're aligned with values that will take our planet Earth further. And well, actually, Vladdy is already uh, saying that we're over the half an hour, I think, but I don't want to um, end the episode um, without asking you. Um, well, we started uh, the episode by saying that this is your third time here in Guatemala, mm -hmm. and uh, that's because you have been here, um, well, in the context of the training uh, for the Waldorf teachers of, uh, of the school here. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, like what do you, have you been doing here, uh, coordinating the group of uh, uh, teacher trainers and all that, can you tell us a little bit about that? Terrific. So first I am delighted to come here. This is an amazing school, unlike other schools that I know. I, for my, throughout my life, my professional life, I have been working at Rudolf Steiner College in California, which is one, which has been one of the strongest teacher training programs for Waldorf teachers in the world. And I have been working in adult education, teaching eurythmy and also philosophy in this training for 30 years. And in the most recent years, I've been also teaching Waldorf education around the world and lecturing widely, giving courses most recently in China and Taiwan a couple times a year. And then three years ago, I got the opportunity to come to Guatemala and work here in this training. And at that time, the school was only three years old and already had kindergarten through sixth grade, I was completely amazed 
And then I learned that the school had the ambition of growing so fast, and now we have a school that's five years old, has 600 students. That makes it one of the biggest schools in the world. And you are growing with teachers who don't have very much of a Waldorf teacher training yet, although many or most of them have training at education and pedagogy, but it's a huge step to take the, the, make the shift from being a classical educator to becoming a Waldorf educator. Because we have to understand the new core values of Waldorf education. So when I came the first time, it was for a 10-day course, and I gave courses in the basic understanding of Waldorf education. And at the end of that time, I met with you, Juan Pablo, and with our wonderful Elenita, yes. and a few other people. And Elenita brought the uh, vision of making a teacher training here in Guatemala at the Colegio, and then also in the future, building this as a center for Waldorf education for Central America. Yeah. And at that moment, we said, wait, <laughs> not too fast, because before we dare to make such a big training, we need to make sure that we're doing your school really well. And because of my many, many years working at Rudolf Steiner College, I have the enormous experience in how to design curriculums, how to design trainings, how to create assignments, how to create records. I know what's needed, and I know so many of the capable experiences uh, and experienced Waldorf teachers in North America and many around the world. And so I offered to support the school in any way I could. And so from that moment, I've been carrying the responsibility of being the curriculum director of the school. And so each season, I design the curriculum, including how much anthroposophy can I give your students in any year? How can we give you the philosophy? Help you to change your thinking? How can we give you artistic experiences to help you, now I use a word that we like in Waldorf, help you get out of your heads <laughs> and into your hearts through artistic self-transformation? How can we teach you what needs to be taught in the curriculum? as main lessons, and how can we teach you how to deliver that to the students in a way that supports head, heart, and hands, the core values of the Waldorf School. And so, I, as the school grows, we've been pulling in experts for the different grade levels and experts in the different arts, and we come together every summer for the week and a half training and also every winter for a more uh, compacted training, a week-long training. And then in conversation with you, we try to design how we can support you to create mentors, and you're already looking for specialty teachers in certain subjects. So 
I feel in some ways that we're building the boat while we sail it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And running really fast to give you the tools that you need to succeed because this is a really important training and I dare say you are almost over your head with the things that you need to accomplish with respect to outreach and parent education and children education and resources but I'm committed to helping your faculty and your administration to build this boat and get it to sail really well and hopefully get us to the place where we can become a, an excellent center for Waldorf education here in Guatemala and for Central America. So I'm really honored and really happy to be part of the team. So thank you very much, Cynthia, not just for the conversation and for sharing your experience, uh, but also for your hard work and for all the gifts that you're giving to the school. So thank you very much. You're so welcome and I thank you and I congratulate you for this phenomenal uh, faculty that you've pulled together. And you know I think about you every week. I'm working <laughs> with you, designing, keeping records, and you're in my heart constantly. Thank you, Cynthia. You're very welcome. Thank you.